Good morning. So wonderful to get together on the Lord's Day, is it not? Uh, hear the collective uh, worship of, of God's people coming together, praising Him, um, partaking in the elements together as we collectively proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Now as we ready our hearts and our minds to the reading and to the preaching of God's Word, we are truly blessed, and I pray that none of us takes this for granted. Well, today, all we have before us is one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture. So join me and turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. It is in John 17 that we find the real Lord's Prayer, as the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle John, pulls back the curtain and brings us onto holy ground. As we get to peer in and hear the very words of our Lord, the Son, praying to the Father, now just hours from his crucifixion. This is truly one of the most profound chapters in all of the Bible, as all 26 verses are of the Lord praying. To his father. This is the Lord's Prayer. And with our time this morning, I want to draw your attention to verses 1 through 5. And we can start by reading these together, and, and then we can carefully consider each of the, of the verses. So, beginning in verse 1, this is the reading of God's holy and living word. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Amen, indeed. In chapter 17 of John, we come to the real Lord's Prayer. You'll remember it was about six months ago that we spend a couple weeks in Matthew chapter 6 as Jesus there is instructing his disciples on how to pray. Theologians and commentators for years have referred to those verses as the Lord's Prayer. But of course, it's not the Lord's Prayer. Jesus would have never prayed that prayer as it asks for forgiveness of sin. That's a pattern for our prayers. But here in John 17, we come to the true Lord's Prayer. Now, of course, Jesus' entire earthly ministry was marked by prayer. The Gospels tell us that. We read, for instance, Jesus prayed at his baptism in Luke 3. Mark 1 and Luke 5 detail that before going out to preach, our Lord would wake up early in the morning while it was still dark outside and would go to a secluded place alone where he would pray 
to his father. He prayed all through the night in Luke 6 before choosing the 12. He prayed before the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 and again the feeding of the 4,000. In Luke 22, he prayed for Peter that his faith wouldn't fail him and that he would return to strengthen the brothers. In Luke 9, Jesus prayed at the Mount of Transfiguration and he prayed before raising Lazarus from the dead in John 11. The Gospels tell us that he prayed and that he prayed often. What they don't tell us is what he said. Sure, we have a verse here and there, Gethsemane, Jesus prays to the Father. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me, not my will, but your will be done. Very brief, just a couple verses here and there. But the one recorded here in John 17 is not only the longest of the prayers that we have recorded by our Lord, but the depths to which it takes us makes it the uttermost profound. These words are our Lord's as he prays to the Father are simply are simple enough for us to understand, yet they plunge the reader into such depths, unfathomable depths into inter-Trinitarian communication between the Father and the Son, and their scope encompasses the entire sweep of redemptive history. This is an incredible prayer. Um, the setting takes place somewhere in between the late night hours of Thursday and the very early morning's hours Friday. Jesus has just concluded his farewell discourse that we started all the way back in chapter 13 in the upper room. We are told at the end of chapter 14, Jesus and his disciples get up and they leave the upper room. Surely they walked outside of the city and, and through one of the gates. By the time we get to chapter 18, the next chapter, we will read that they will then cross the Kidron Brook and enter the Garden of Gethsemane, which is where the Lord Jesus will be arrested. He will be tried over several mock trials, and then the next morning he will be crucified Friday. This prayer then seals all of the promises that Jesus has told to his disciples in chapters 13 through 16. All of the heavenly divine promises we've read as our Lord's been preparing them for both future trials and triumphs. Jesus prayed this prayer aloud not only for their benefit, but for all who would come after them. He prayed this prayer as the one and only Savior. He prayed this prayer as the great high priest of his church. And what Jesus asked for, he obtains. Yes, beloved, this prayer was fully answered with a resounding amen from heaven. And is, is still being answered until every last vessel of mercy is gathered home into glory. This is an extraordinary prayer. It has often been called the high priestly prayer of our Lord. A priest is one who would make intercession on behalf of a large group of people before God. Jesus is our great high priest. And here he prays not only for himself, but on behalf of all who would come to believe in him. 
Jesus makes two great intercessions. He lives not only to make intercession for us in prayer, as he will do here in chapter 17, but also in just hours from now, he will intercede for his own upon the cross for our sins. For the cross, he will intercede for those whom the Father has given to him. Therefore, as Hebrews 7.25 says, he is able to save to the uttermost. Those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For when Jesus makes this intercession upon the cross, this isn't for some random amount of people that he doesn't know that, oh boy, he sure hopes someday that his blood will atone for. No, no. For as our Lord was nailed to that cross at Calvary, 1 Peter 2.24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That is when he interceded for you on your behalf. It is not for the world at large. This intercession is for only those who will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, this is very clear in verse 9 of this prayer. As Jesus prays, I ask on their behalf, speaking of his disciples, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus' priestly intercession was never for the world at large. It was exclusively and personally for those whom the Father had given to him. So as Jesus now prays this prayer, this is really a family prayer. This is on behalf of all those who would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and who would be given to him from the foundations of the world. As I said, this is just an incredible, incredible prayer. And this sweeps through all of redemptive history. As the Holy Spirit draws back the veil, we are then escorted in by the Lord Jesus Christ into the very throne room of God. So, as we begin looking at this prayer, this chapter can be divided up into three sections. Section number one is what we'll cover today. It's verses one through five. And is the intercession of the Lord for himself. Section number two is verses 6 through 19 as he intercedes for the 11. And then section number three we'll do on the third week is verses 20 through 26 as the Lord prays beyond the 11 disciples and looks to all those who would come to believe in him through their word. And that will go right through the centuries until the very end of the age. So let's... Uh, begin by looking at verse 1, and, and the first heading is the hour for which he came. The hour for which he came. Verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, and, and these words is a, a reference back to his, his farewell discourse, chapters 13 through 16, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. 
This hour refers to the consummation of the Lord's earthly ministry, and it encompasses the appointed time of his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation, and his glorification. The Lord starts low and goes up, 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 up. It is the hour that has been appointed from all eternity past. The unfolding drama of redemptive history is now reaching its apex. This is the long-awaited hour and has finally come in which the Son of Man, the Son of God, would offer himself as the perfect and only atoning sacrifice for sin. This is a one-shot deal fulfilled by one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And of all the golden threads that we've noted kind of going through the Gospel of John, this has been one of them, his hour, the appointed hour. It began, if you remember, all the way back in chapter 2 at the wedding in Cana, when Jesus said to his mother, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Speaking of turning the water into wine, my hour has not yet come. Again, in chapter 7, Jesus said to his brothers, my time has not yet come. And again, in chapter 7, verse 30, John tells us, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And again, this is repeated in chapter 8 and throughout. But now, now, here our Lord opens his prayer with the dramatic declaration, Father, the hour has come the hour has come when the sinless one would be made sin for those who believe so that in him we might become the righteousness of god the hour has come when christ would cancel colossians 2 14 the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside nailing it to the cross this was now the power to come into the world to do the will of the Father who had sent him and to give his life as a ransom for many. And, and though the Lord would be humiliated and he would be mocked and he would be scourged and spit on and beaten and unjustly tried and crucified on that cross, don't be fooled, this was always God's plan. It was always about his hour. This was the hour of Christ's Christ triumph over the prince of the world and the kingdom of darkness. It was the climactic hour when God, through Christ's sacrifice, would defeat sin. He would defeat death and Satan and redeem a people for himself. Notice what the Lord Praise next. Praise. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. We could spend a month plunging to the depths of what this means and, and not even be touching the edges. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you is a petition from the son that really summarizes not only the intent uh, of this entire Lord's Prayer, but also everything that has been at the heart of the Lord's earthly ministry. Okay? In everything Jesus said and did, he was continually seeking to bring glory 
to God the Father, the one whom sent him. And so here he petitions that the, the Father would, in essence, uh, reverse the, self the self-emptying entailed in his own incarnation and to restore the Son to the splendor that he had shared with his Father from all eternity past, before the world began. This entails everything that is necessary for his exaltation into glorification. Everything the son in his humiliation set aside, he did not lose it, he, he, he humbled himself. He set aside his full glory coming in the likeness of man. But before he returns to his rightful place of glory at the right hand of God the Father, he will depend on the Father as he goes through the cross. For it will be at the cross that the Son of God displayed the most infinite glory to God the Father. And when his work on the cross is complete, he will say, it is finished, Father. I have completed everything you have sovereignly predestined for me to do. Thus, the work of salvation is complete. So we praise Father. The hour has come. Glorify your son. Glorify your son. Now I want you to notice the purpose why he prays this. And it's the, at the end of verse 1. He prays that the son may glorify you. <laughs> the word that is an important word there. For it, it is indicating the purpose for this request. The, the son isn't selfishly praying for just uh, his own glory here. That's not what he's praying for. He's praying, Father, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. It, it, it's for yet a higher purpose, a higher calling, because Jesus knows that the cross displayed God's glory like no other event in history. As all of God's attributes were on full display at the cross, the righteousness of God was on display at the cross. It required the precious blood of his son, a lamb unblemished and spotless as an atonement for sin. The holiness of God was on display at the cross as it is only through Christ's finished work on the cross that God then receives sinners to himself. The love of God was on display at the cross for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to die in our place. I like how one scholar, Thomas Schreiner, captures this thought. He said, what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ displays both the justice and the love of God because God's holiness is vindicated in the cross. While at the same time, his love is displayed in the willing and glad sacrifice of his son. And you know what? The father answered this prayer. The father answered this prayer and we see it probably most clearly pictured in philippians chapter 2 8 through 11 as paul writes and being found in human form he jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross therefore god highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now watch this, to the glory of God the Father. This is an extraordinary prayer. And, and in many ways it serves as an example for us on how we should also pray. One of the examples that come out of this is he shows us here is that we pray as one of our highest ambitions to intercede for those things that glorify our Heavenly Father. Whether it's for salvation of the lost or, or whether it be for any other form of provision. Whatever it is that, that we bring before the, the Father in prayer, our highest motive should always be our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. I, I, I want to see you glorified. I want my heart to be aligned with the heart of God. I want to pray for that which most glorifies you, Father. That in itself removes so many of my own selfish desires and it more quickly aligns my heart with what God wants to do. I mean, I know you guys know this, but God answers a lot of prayers, man. <laughs> he really does. If our will is aligned with the Father's will, He's doing it. He's doing it. He says, I'm doing that. I'm advancing the kingdom of God. So this is an awesome request. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Amen. Amen. Well, this leads us to uh, number two. And the right that he responses. The right that the Lord Jesus Christ possess, uh, sorry, possesses. And really over these next four verses, Jesus will reference four facets of, of the saving purpose of God. And each one is centered on his glory producing work of redemption at the cross. The first one is, is the right he possesses to offer eternal life, to offer eternal life. Verse 2, his prayer continues. He, he prays, since you, the, the Father, has given him, the Son, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Th these, these are profound words our Lord is saying right here. Let, let's consider just the first half of this verse. Since you have given him authority over all flesh. In God's eternal plan of salvation, the Son was given authority over all flesh. After his resurrection, we read in Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. All authority. Ephesians 1, verse 20 says, he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. The, the father has literally given to the son all authority heaven and on earth and under the earth all authority 
You remember it was back in uh, John chapter 5. Jesus uh, was confronting the religious leaders of Israel. And he says in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Jesus has all authority over all flesh to execute not only judgment, but to give eternal life to all whom the Father has given him. We just read back in Philippians 2, Jesus had been given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the right that Jesus possesses as he has authority in heaven and on earth. And the authority belongs to him for a very important reason. And it is stated in the first chapter of John's gospel. John chapter 1, verse 4. Really, those four mammoth verses that we spent quite a bit of time in when we first started this gospel, but I want you to notice something specific and very clearly that is stated for us back in John 1, verse 4. In him was life. In him was life. That is the foundational identification of God. God, the eternal God, the one who has given life to everything that exists. <laughs> All right? He didn't receive life in him was life. He was not born. He did not receive it. In him was life. Now that is exactly what John wants us to understand as he opened this gospel. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things. What things? All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. The son already had the absolute authority of God in his essence as the second person of the Godhead. But as the incarnate son, the Lord Jesus Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant. And being born in the likeness of men, he humbled himself being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he did that in order to accomplish the sovereign work of redemption through his death for all that the Father would give to him. So that was point number two, the right that he, Jesus, possesses. Point number three, the relationship he offers. The relationship he offers. Verse 3. Jesus continues this prayer, and this is eternal life. 
that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Um, <laughs> how would you answer that question if somebody asked you, uh, what is eternal life? You might say something along of spending eternity in heaven with God or something like that. This is how Jesus answers that question. What is eternal life, Lord? He says, this is eternal life. Oh, you're going to tell us that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Is that how you would have answered it? <laughs> eternal life, we then could say, is the perfect knowledge of the only true God and Jesus Christ. That's eternal life. This, this Greek, uh, that they know you, implies not just like, um, and certainly not uh, aimed at an intellectual um, knowledge, but through a personal, this is actually through a personal experience, knowing who he is personally. The one true God, trusting him through your trials, knowing him, trusting him, believing in him, and this is the relationship that he offers. This is the relationship. Not to have eternal life is to not to know God, not to know Christ, not to know divine love and forgiveness. It means to be ignorant, cut off from the life of God, blind, dead, in darkness. To have eternal life is to know God. Let that just breathe over you and to know his son, Jesus Christ. And someday, someday to know God and to know Christ perfectly. And to love them with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, even in our glorified capacities. So when we get to heaven, it's really just going to be, with no time, one seamless, never-ending moment in which we are consumed with the perfect knowledge of who God and His Son, Jesus Christ, is. The perfect love of God. That's eternal life. Right now we know in part, right? 1 Corinthians uh, 13. Now we know in part, but when the perfect one comes, the partial will pass away. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. When eternal life reaches its perfection, we will know both God and Christ. And in the age to come, we will love them perfectly, comprehensively, completely, worshiping them in unending glory and full of joy in heaven. That was number three, the relationship he offers, eternal life. We now come to number four, and the requirements that he meets. The requirement that the Lord meets to pay for this eternal life. 
Verse 4. The Lord continues this prayer. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. In God's perfect plan of redemption, and in keeping with his perfect justice, the Son had to come to the earth in order to save those whom the Father had given him. So now he prays, Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. That work culminated at the cross. Culminated at the cross, which is in view here with anticipation. See that? I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work. He's viewing the cross with this, this anticipation and the finished work already coming through, but for he is certain that the eternal promises of God would be perfectly accomplished and that nothing could prevent the Father's purposes from not being fulfilled. We, we are hours away from the cross. And, and although Jesus still must be crucified, his statement stands as a declaration of his perfect fulfillment of the Father's will, of his entire earthly ministry, everything that I have come to do, I have done. But his statement did more than just merely reveal his own confidence in the plans of the Father. It also served as an example to the disciples. The disciples hearing this, reminding them to trust in God's sovereign plan and work. And to take comfort in knowing that the Lord is in control. The Lord is in control. Furthermore, this verse implies the truth of Christ's immaculate, perfect, sinless life. Jesus boldly challenged the religious leaders in John 8, 46. Which one of you convicts me of sin? <laughs> Paul described Christ in 2 Corinthians 5, 21 as him who knew no sin. In 1 John 3, 5, John said, and in him there is no sin. It was imperative Lord Jesus Christ to, to live a life of, of perfect obedience, fulfilling all of God's righteous requirements. He was born under the law and fulfilled it perfectly. Only one who was perfectly holy as God is holy could be the final sacrifice for sin. Only one. And through his death and resurrection, Jesus conquered death and sin and provided eternal life to all who would believe in him. And, 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 be, and because he... he he willingly, and scripture says joyfully, laid that perfect life down on the cross. He imputed to believers his justification. We are justified by his work so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ's willingness to be a, a sin-bearing sacrifice on the cross was the ultimate demonstration of his complete commitment to obeying the Father, as well as the ultimate expression of his love for sinners. Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Wow. Well, this brings us to the last point. Point number five. 
the reverence that he deserves. The reverence that this one, the Lord Jesus Christ, deserves. In, in verse 5, Jesus now uh, reaffirms and, and restates his original petition from verse 1, but he goes even deeper. He goes even deeper. He prays, and now, Father, he, he prays now because there is no time to waste. He prays now because he's under the shadow of the cross. Now, because in just hours, he will be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he will be crucified. There's, there's an anticipation and, and an urgency about this moment. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with a glory that I had with you before the world existed. <laughs> we need to understand this when we uh, do a, a study on the person of, of Christ, that before the Son of God entered the world through his incarnation, through the miraculous inconception, conception, he had equal glory with the Father and the Spirit, for that matter, Father, Son, and Spirit. But when he entered into the world through the miraculous virgin birth, he added to himself humanity. And Philippians 2 says, in the form of a bondservant, that he came veiled in his glory. He did not give up any of his glory. His glory was simply veiled from everyone seeing it. And a few times we see in, in Scripture that the veil would be uh, pulled back and you would get a glimpse of the glory of Christ. For instance, in Matthew 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Just for that moment, Peter, James, and John saw the glory as the Lord was transfigured before them. And his glory shined forth like the sun. His clothes became white as light. There were just a few isolated times, but on the whole, his glory was veiled. He was a king in the form of a slave. And he says, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I want that glory back. This is the glory that belongs to Christ alone. And the Lord Jesus Christ longs for the restoration and for the fullness of his pre-incarnate glory before the world existed. <laughs> that glory, that, that highest honor, that exaltation, that, that highest view of Christ, Father, that I had with you. It, it, it is the reverence that he deserves. And the, lo the Lord longs for it back. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says, For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That joy that was before him was both the restored glory and those for whom he died for to bring them into glory with him 
in heaven. <laughs> in fact, near the end of this prayer in John 17, that is exactly what he says. John 17, verse 24, he prays, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Father, I just desire that they also, they also, they're coming with me, that they see my glory. That prayer will one day be answered if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're one whom the Father has chosen and he has given you to his Son, you will behold with, with glory-filled eyes this unveiled, matchless glory of the Lord Jesus Christ at the right hand of God the Father. The, the, the glory that will be so bright, so radiant, it says in Revelation 21 that the Father will just snuff out the sun. For there will be no need for light. For its temple, the Bible says, is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city where you will dwell has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. The Lamb will light the city. I don't know what consists of the most deepest and the most profound thoughts that have entered your mind, but these words our Lord gives must be on that short list. Uh, I, I'm not sure on, on this side of glory that, that we can climb any higher up the ladder <laughs> than the verses that we have looked at today. These scriptures demand a high view of the Lord Jesus Christ. It really demands our, our, our highest heart worship of him, our, our, our highest devotion, our highest commitment, a, a great love and passion for our Lord. How could we ever become lukewarm of a Savior like this when we have such a glorious, shining Savior who has already now been restored to glory and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Now, all authority. All authority. I just have to end by saying this. If, if you have never believed in this Savior, I must tell you that there is not another. The Jesus we have just read about today is the one whom the Father sent into this world to seek and to save that which was lost. If you've latched on to a different Jesus than this one, that one will take you to the bowels of hell. Paul said in Galatians 1.1, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. The early church was swarmed as today with people who wanted to change who the person of Christ was. And Paul was quick to note, there's not a different gospel. There's only the gospel that we presented to you. I don't care if I show up, an angel from heaven, Peter, 
any of the apostles. If it's a different gospel than the one that we presented to you, let them be accursed. There is only one Savior that will take you into the very presence of God. Jesus said in verse 3 of this prayer, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Listen, we all desperately need saving. And, and, and only one who can save you, it's only one who has prayed these words, who was sent by the Father into this world to give his life as a ransom for many. And I just have to repeat verse 3 again, that this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ. Do you know him personally and faithfully and trusted in him then through those storms? Do you know him? Not by something that you have done. Do you know the one who has died for you and has covered you with his perfect blood? Have you believed in this Jesus? The one at the cross, the one who rose from the dead, the one who is ruling and reigning now in glory, the one who is seated at the right hand of God the Father, the one who has said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and the one who said, an hour is coming and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. In him was life. In him was life. These are the words of the true and living God. My prayer this morning is that you have heard him. Um, we want to pray with you this morning. If you need to be encouraged or strengthened today in, in your faith, um, you're more than welcome to, to come forward. And I'd invite the rest of you to please stand as we praise our Lord one more time. All hail King Jesus. <laughs>